fellow students, if you'd open to Revelation 14, we're going to finish uh, the chapter uh, today. Um, I tried to do the last half of 14 and all of 15, and I just almost choked, and I couldn't make it work, so we're going to do about six, seven, eight verses today, and then we'll do chapter 15, Lord willing, next week. Remember, we're in, uh, in kind of an interlude section of Revelation, just to bring you up to speed chronologically, we've been through... Uh, the seven seal judgments, we've been through the seven trumpet judgments, we're probably just past the midway point of the uh, tribulation timeline, which lasts seven years, it's the end of human history as we know it, and the great tribulation takes up a pretty good chunk of Revelation, actually chapter 6 through about chapter 18, but this, these three chapters we've been on the last few weeks, chapters 12, 13, and 14, are kind of an interlude. They don't advance the, 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 the chronology of the tribulation events. What they do is they kind of fill in the blanks. They give you some backdrop about events and details and persons and concepts. Today, the last half of this chapter really deals with the final harvest of the earth, the final judgment of the earth, the final reaping of the planet, if you will. The first time Jesus came to planet earth, he came as a suffering servant, right? He came as a baby. The next time Jesus comes, he's going to come as a conquering king. He's going to come as the ruler of the universe. John MacArthur says the first time Jesus came, he came as a sower, a sower of seed in grace. And the next time he comes, he will come as a reaper in wrath, which is very interesting. The wrath of God is not something that the contemporary church does a lot of time speaking about. And our culture is wholly not um, uh, in touch at all with the notion of wrath against sin. So this is kind of new teaching for the bulk of that. So where we are today is we're, we're, we're finishing up uh, chapter 14, the interlude. Chapter 15 is going to introduce the final seven judgments, the seven bold judgments. And then chapter 16, we get into the final wrath of God, which are the seven bold judgments. The seven bold judgments occur very, very rapidly. If you look at them chronologically, they probably occur in a matter of weeks. And what God really does is deconstruct the planet in probably less than 30 days. So it's a very dramatic final judgment of God. And right now the Lord is talking to us in the last part of chapter 14 about the final judgment. And he uses a couple of word pictures. He uses the word harvest, harvest, and reaping. So when you see the word harvest in the Bible, usually they're talking about judgment about God's judgment. And the word judgment relates to the judge, right? It relates to a court of law. A curiosity, how many have ever been in a court of law as a defendant? <laughs> I just, just checking, I just, you know, all those hands go, not me. I was called on a jury, right? Anyway, a court of law, of course, uh, a judge in a court of law exercises discernment in order to render a verdict a just verdict, a righteous verdict, an honest verdict. God here is portrayed as the all-knowing, perfectly righteous judge whose verdicts are eternally accurate and eternally just. So it's interesting because this passage really throws on its head the notion that man is the center of the universe. Our culture has elevated humanity to the point where we believe we're the arbiter of what right and wrong is, we're the arbiter of good taste, we're the arbiter of what is appropriate. That's a nice word for right or wrong in our culture. Actually, God the creator, not man the creature, has the authority to determine what's right or wrong. The world's judgments about what right or wrong are are reliably foolish because this world has been deceived by the father of lies. 
So when you listen to the culture about what is right or wrong, all I can tell you is that they're reliably wrong because they're following deceit. They're not following the truth of God. So God alone has the right to judge, and God alone is qualified to judge. So when you read this passage here, you're going to see the word reaping and harvest a lot. For those of you that farm or around farming, the, the harvest is generally the end of the farming season, right? Would you say that's true? The whole point of farming is to what? Harvest a crop so you can eat and live for another year. So to take this metaphor, God has been farming the earth, so to speak, for a few thousand years, nurturing and growing his people, preparing them for heaven. But unfortunately, God's field has also grown a lot of weeds, right? Jesus uses that metaphor a lot. Along with the good seed, the good crop, there's a lot of weeds. God is going to harvest the earth in this passage and reward the good and punish the bad. In this chapter, these last six verses, there are two harvests. Two harvests mentioned, two very different harvests. The harvest of grain, or wheat, is found in verses 14, 15, and 16. And that involves Jesus coming and separating the wheat from the weeds, the saved from the lost, the good and the bad. The second harvest of grapes is found in, chapter, in uh, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And this is strictly the punishment and destruction of the wicked. So there's two harvests we're going to be looking at here. So here's the key idea. God is both perfectly just and at the same time completely merciful. So paradoxically, God seeks to save sinners from his own judgment. If you fail to understand that God is both perfectly just and at the same time completely merciful, you will misinterpret the character of God. God takes no delight in the lostness or punishing the wicked, but his holiness cannot tolerate sin. He is both and at the same time. This verse just knocked my socks off this week. Psalm 711. If you want to read something that'll make you uh, a little uncomfortable, maybe a lot uncomfortable, Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who is angry with sinners every day. And I thought, whoa, that's a little different picture of God than what we see because we want to think about the, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus in the manger, you know, or Jesus on the cross. I was in a church this week singing and Jesus was on a cross and I wanted to go up and say, did you not read the rest of the story? You know, there is a resurrection. He's enthroned. He's the king. He's the Lord of glory. He's not dead. He's alive forevermore. But God is angry with sinners every day because God hates the cancer of sin that is contaminating his universe and killing his children. God's holy justice demands that he destroy sin and judge sinners because if God tolerated sin, he would not be a good God. If you tolerate sin, what does that make you? Hint, it doesn't make you like God, right? If you tolerate sin, you become evil because you put up with it. God would be evil if he tolerated sin. Let me give you a word picture. If cancer is killing your child and someone says, you should be tolerant of that cancer, it has a point of view too. How can you be destructive of cancer? And you say, you don't understand. The cancer is going to die or my child's going to die. We're going to kill a cancer because we love our children. Correct? Say amen. Right? What do you think God the Father feels? Why does he hate the cancer of sin that's killing you? 
killing me, killing this world. He's going to kill it. He's going to destroy it. That's what judgment's about. If one of your children was harming their younger brother or sister, you would be angry with the perpetrator? Or would you just let it go on? Of course you would stop it because you love both of your children, the perpetrator and the victim. You would stop that wickedness. God is going to do the same thing. So God is holy and he's going to put an end to sin. But if God were only just and had no mercy, everyone would be in hell now. Immediately, right? The instant you sinned, immediately you would be judged and sentenced. It's his mercy is the only reason we're still here. It's his mercy is the only reason this planet still exists because when you look at the planet, would you say it's kind of a mess? Yeah, it's getting worse. By the way, it's getting worse by design. We're going to talk about that. I talk to people all the time. They say, well, if God was a good God, he'd do something. I said, if God did something, you wouldn't be here. And neither would I, right? Because he would have judged us. So God is both perfectly just and completely merciful. God's mercy towards sinners is revealed by his patience. Write down 2 Peter 3.9. Just jot down 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And I can see some of us going, yeah, I know he's patient toward my brother-in-law. He needs to be patient. No, it says he's patient toward you. Put, put your name in that blank. He's patient toward Brad. Thank God he's patient with Brad. Brad needs it. Needs all help he can get. Not wishing for any to perish. Underline that, 2 Peter 3, 9. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is the mercy of God that is exercised through patience. How long has God been patient with human sin? Since Adam and Eve. He's been patient with sin in the heavenly since the fall of Satan. It's a long time God's been patient with sin. God is the perfect parent. He's our father. He's patient with our failings and our sins, but God never whitewashes his children's sins. God never sweeps our sins under the carpet. He never pretends like they didn't exist. Let's go in denial and pretend that that didn't happen. God never does that. He's both perfectly just and completely merciful. He will never excuse sin because he's a good God. His holiness must destroy the cancer of sin. And so God now begins his final judgment on planet Earth because he knows that no one else will come to faith from this point forward. From chapter 14 on, no one in Revelation has ever seen as repenting. No one. All they do is curse God. So from this point on, we've crossed a point. There's no repentance, so God begins the judgment. Let's start. Chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and the sharp sickle in his hand. He says, then I looked. Anytime you see this in the book of Revelation, John is getting a new revelation. He's getting a new vision. I looked. He saw something new. It's astonishing. He says, behold. In the vernacular, it will be, wow. In other words, it's amazing, this picture that he sees. And he sees something that takes his breath away. He sees a white cloud. Of course, Daniel 7 and Matthew 24 tell us that the Son of Man is on the clouds of heaven, coming in the sky with power and great glory. So clouds are always elevated. Clouds are always lifted up, and they have to do with authority and visibility. And Jesus, of course, we're going to talk about him, is sitting on this cloud. 
He's sitting on the cloud as a throne. The cloud in this picture is Jesus' throne, and he's sitting because he's waiting for the command of the Father to begin the last judgment, to begin the last judgment. Remember, when Jesus comes back to take over the earth, he's not coming back as a baby. He's not coming back in a stable. He's not going to be obscure. He's not going to be unseen. When he comes back the second time, it says, every eye will see him, right? Every, which means he's going to be as obvious as a noonday sun on a summertime day. It'll be pretty obvious, extremely obvious that he's coming back and every eye will see him. If they call, John says that this is the son of man. Now, if you have ever read the Gospels at all, especially the Gospel of Luke, you'll understand that that was Jesus' favorite self-designation. He called himself the Son of Man while he was in the flesh in human form over and over and over. It was his favorite title for himself. And it refers to his humility and his humanity. Because when he came to earth, he took on human form as a baby. He was humble as a servant, and he was human so he could pay the price for our sins. When he came the first time, of course, he came as Mary's baby. When he comes the last time, it's interesting in verse 14. Underline the word son of man and make a note next to it. This is the last time in this book you will ever see son of man again. It's the last time. It never, ever shows up from here on out. From here forward... Jesus Christ is only portrayed as the Son of God, as the eternal judge, as the conquering king, as the Lord of lords. This is the last time you will see Son of Man in this book. So there is a definite break point. There's no more Son of Man going forward, and there's no more repentance going forward. There's still opportunity, but no one does. So there's a point of opportunity to repent is disappeared. Now, he's sitting on a on a cloud, he's got a golden crown on his head, which emphasizes his majesty and his lordship. And this crown in the Greek is Stephanos. Stephanos means a victor's crown. It's a crown of triumph. It's a crown of achievement. It's a crown of victory. And it's always a crown that was earned through achievement. So this is not a crown that is designated without achievement. When you name your child Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, you are calling them the victor. That's what it means, victor, right? You could just shorten it, just call it Victor and be done, right? So why worry with Stephen? No one knows what Stephen is. Everybody knows what Victor is, right? You're supposed to laugh. I mean, you know, it's pretty sad. Or you're naming them the one who triumphs. So athletes in the ancient Olympic Games were crowned with a laurel wreath. That's the crown. It was made out of laurel leaves, and sometimes it was even laced with gold. And they only got that when they won their athletic event. Today in the Olympic Games, of course, we give them an Olympic medal. Back then they got this wreath. Laurel wreath laced with gold as a crown. You also got that not just for athletic competitions, but you would wear it in military parades if you'd been a victor. If you had won a military conflict, you could wear that in a military parade. So the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is not portrayed here as a baby in a manger. He's portrayed as a warrior king. A warrior king who will come and conquer and wear the victor crown. What was the very first crown that Jesus wore? The crown of thorns. He's not ever going to wear that crown again, but he's going to wear those scars from that crown forever. The last crown that Jesus wears will be the royal diadema, the crown of the king. This crown is the victor's crown because he has won the battle. He also, what else is he carrying in his hand? 
a razor sharp sickle. That means he's coming in judgment in the harvest. I don't know if you've ever seen a sickle. Maybe you've seen some old uh, Encyclopedia Britannica's way back in the day. It's a razor sharp curved blade is attached to a long wooden handle that was used to harvest grain. When I was a kid on the farm, we called them a scythe, S-C-Y-T-H-E. You had a handle and a curved blade and you would literally just mow through the field like this. And as you mowed, that blade would just Is there something up there? Is that close to my neck? Is that what that's supposed to be? Everybody's looking behind me and I said, there's something behind my head, yes. Okay, I'll be a little more paranoid, Rob, next time, yeah. Okay. Anyway, it cuts the grain right down at the stalk. Today, when we harvest grain, we use a mechanical scythe. We call it a combine harvester, right? You get these reciprocating knives going back and forth, and they just slice off the grain right at the, right at the ground level at that point in time. So Jesus is the one holding the scythe, and he's ready to harvest the earth in final judgment. So make a note, Jesus is the reaper. Jesus is the reaper here. Now, this fulfills the prophecy that Joel made in Joel 3.12. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I, God is talking, I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Verse 13, Joel 3, 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. So the last judgment, the final judgment is portrayed as the harvest and the field is ripe for harvest. Look to verse 15, next verse. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now the reason you need a reaper is because the crop is ripe, right? It's ready to harvest. And this angel is coming out of where? Coming out of the temple. The temple is in heaven. This is the dwelling place of God. Angels are messengers, Angels are servants. Angels carry out the will of God and they carry out his commands. So when you see an angel coming out of the temple, coming out of the altar, from the altar, from the presence of God the Father, they're on a divine mission. This angel is not telling the Son of God to reap the planet on his own initiative. This angel is conveying a command from God the Father to God the Son to reap the earth. So the angel is just announcing the decision of the Father to Jesus the Son. And what's the decision? Put in your sickle and reap. Now, we know that Jesus alone has the right to judge humanity. If you want to cross-reference, look at John 5, 27. All judgment has been given to Jesus the Son because of who he is and his finished work on the cross. But the timing of the judgment, the timing of the reaping, the timing of the final harvest is the Father's. The Father has now announced that it's time for the harvest. By the way, a sickle does not reap slowly. When you take a razor-sharp sickle and you whack it through the grass or the grain or whatever you're cutting, it cuts it to the ground like that. It cuts it to the ground very, very suddenly and very, very severely and very, very completely. You ever heard the phrase, boy, they just got cut off at the ankles? That's the picture. It means they didn't have anything left to stand on, so they fell down, right? Just cut them off at the ankles. We're talking verbal now. I mean, not a literal scythe whacking you off at the ankles, but that's the word picture. That's what a sickle does to grain. 
cuts it off right at the stem. That picture is what the judgment of righteous God is going to do to unrepentant sinners. Instant, sudden, no reprieve, done. People who have rejected Jesus' payment for their sin will, pun intended, not have a leg to stand on. Literally, not have a leg to stand on. There's no argument and there's no excuse because they all have heard and they all have chosen to reject. You know, this is, when we get into this judgment and you, and you start reading the next few months or next few weeks in this book, some of it's going to take your breath away. People say, well, God is not dealing with sin. Yes, he is. And when he does, it will be a complete dealing with sin. When God is ready in his divine time, this should give you great comfort. Don't lose any sleep over sin increasing as part of God's plan. But when he deals with it, it will be caught off at ground level. Now, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come. Underline the word the hour. That's a singular. It means a predetermined time. One of Satan's greatest lies is that there will be no final judgment, that there will be no day of accounting, there will be no end point of human history. And one of the ways Satan confuses this issue by on purpose is the lie of reincarnation. <coughs> reincarnation, or for those of you from Kentucky, it's reincarnation. It says that life is just recycled reruns, right? You just recycle and you rerun over. You get an unlimited number of do-overs, right? Hopefully getting better and better until you get good enough. Now, one of the lies of reincarnation is good enough is never defined. How good do you have to be so you can stop doing this cycle? It's never defined on purpose, right? When you become good enough, you disappear into the cosmic fog that's called nirvana. You cease to exist. Somehow that doesn't seem very compelling, like I should really be working toward this, right? You compare this with a literal heaven that Jesus talks about and you understand the difference between. Satan says there is no final judgment. God, the creator, says the physical universe had a predetermined beginning and it is a predetermined ending. Down to the nanosecond. When God said, let there be, that was the precise time of the beginning. When God ends it, you've got it written in here from Genesis to Revelation. In between, we have human history. It's interesting that Jesus was said to be born by Luke in the fullness of time. Whose calendar was that? God determined when the fullness of time for Jesus to be born was. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, died on the cross on Passover Friday at the exact moment which was 3 p.m., when the sacrificial lamb was being slain by the priest in the temple. Three o'clock precisely. The exact time. God the Father has now determined in this chapter that the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The last Gentile to be saved has been saved. Romans 11.25, I think that is. At that point in time, God says, it's time to close the books on planet Earth. There is an end point coming that should impact the way we live. We should not live vaguely. We should not live with an open-ended. We should live knowing that God has a predetermined beginning and a predetermined end. 
The time has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. We've already talked about that harvest involves judgment, but I want to refine this a little bit. Harvest in Scripture very often refers to gathering and separating that which is productive, wheat, from that which is useless, tares or chaff, right? Here's the principle. Everyone is either wheat or weed. And at the harvest, Jesus will separate people by destination. The barn or the bonfire? Now, I could be accused by the world of being narrow, and you're absolutely right. Truth is narrow. There is no third way. You're either wheat or you're weed, period. And you know something? It's not my job to tell. Jesus Christ, your creator, tells, and he knows his own, and he separates people by destination. Jesus told a parable about wheat and weeds growing in the same field. The wheat are the sons of God. Of course, the tares or the weeds are the sons of Satan. One of the great problems of you and I is God has allowed the righteous and the wicked to share space on planet Earth. Right? You've got some roommates that are following Satan, correct? On the planet. Until now. But Jesus told us that the final judgment right here, he's going to separate the good from the bad. There's going to be no more coexistent. There's going to be no shared roommate space, right? Matthew 13, if you're looking for a cross-reference, Matthew 13, verse 30. He's talking about that. And, the, and, you know, his disciples came to him. He told a parable. And the servants of the Lord of the field said, you've got wheat and you've got tares growing together. Let's go tear the tares out right now. Let's just pull the weeds right now. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Allow them both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, God will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 40, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire and that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now in wheat farming, the tares or the weeds have a name. We call it, it's called the bearded darnel plant. The bearded darnel plant. It's an actual plant when it's immature, the bearded darnel plant looks exactly like a plant of wheat. You cannot distinguish it when they're immature. Sometimes they even call it false wheat. That's, that's literally a title for this bearded darnel plant. Only when both plants mature can you tell the difference. The head or the very top of this bearded darnel plant turns black when it's mature and it stands straight up. It's filled with hundreds of little black seeds it's a natural emetic. It can cause nausea and too many of them could kill you. So it, this is not wheat, right? This is the bearded darnel plant. It looks like wheat. It's deceptive, right? But it can be lethal. When they mature, the ripe wheat head is very heavy with brown grain seeds and it actually bends over because it has all the weight. So once they mature, you can really tell the difference between false wheat and real wheat. Sometimes that's like people, you know? When they're younger, yeah, I can't tell. But you know something? Over time, over time, you can tell. At the harvest, God's going to separate what is good grain and harmful weeds. 
God says to the son, put in your sickle, the earth is ripe, it's ready for harvest. Now it says it's ripe, it means it's dry. The grain is dry, it's withered, it's ready to harvest. God's good wheat, God's saints, are going to be harvested and brought into heaven. And of course, the tares, the wicked followers of Satan, and they're ready for the fire. The world at this point, let me just give you a reminder. At this point in history, during the tribulation... The world that's left here has heard the gospel from 144,000 Jewish evangelists for seven years. They've been supernaturally protected. They've been exposed to the gospel for seven years, 144,000 evangelists. The world has heard the gospel for three and a half years with God's two witnesses who have supernatural ability to preach and breathe out fire and kill their opponents. Three and a half years, they've had that witness. The world has heard the gospel through the seven seal and seven trumpet judgments, and they've actually had an angel flying in mid-heaven for months preaching the gospel in all the languages of the earth. No one can say, I didn't know. There is no ignorance left on planet earth. They know. They have rejected. God says, the last Gentile has come to faith. It's time for the harvest. And the Lord knows when that time is. Verse 16. Then he who sat on the cloud, the sun, Jesus, swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. I want you to notice that it doesn't say that some of the earth was reaped and some escaped. What does it say? The earth was reaped. Here's the principle. This should put gas in your tank. Live your life every day as if you will face God's judgment today. Because someday, everyone will. Everyone will. There is no escape from the final audit of Almighty God on our lives. And He not only knows what you've done, He knows why you've done it. Do you understand why the blood of Jesus Christ is so essential for us? You have a holy God, an all-knowing God who knows your thoughts and he's judging them and your words. If it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all sin, where would we be? We'd be on the bonfire, folks. It's not our goodness that means anything. It's the goodness of Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness. This is one of the reasons why I know when we do evangelism, a lot of times we talk about the good things Jesus brings to your life. Some people don't come because they're not convinced they're sinners. And they don't understand their sin because they don't understand the holiness of God. If you understand the holiness of God, you have no problem looking in the mirror and going, I don't measure up. But if you fail to see the holiness of God, then you will treat God casually. And when you treat God casually, you turn into a casualty on the bonfire. As believers, don't Take God lightly. When he speaks, it's your creator talking. Yes, I know he's your friend through Jesus Christ, but first and foremost, he's God. We should tremble. We should tremble. When I was a kid, when my father spoke, boy, I knew he loved me, but I'm telling you, he was my father. And that's how we need to treat Almighty God. Now, Jesus told his disciples he was going to come back and gather the harvest this way. You want to cross-reference, look at Matthew 24. 
Matthew 24, 31, Jesus told him, he says, and I will send, he will, he's talking about himself, his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. He's talking worldwide judgment. It's all going to happen at the same time. It happens suddenly and it says when Jesus comes back to earth, how many eyes will see him? Every eye will see him. Do you know what the, the inverse of that is? Inverted? Jesus sees everyone at the same time, yes? You know, we say, well, you ever had a child who put their head under the covers and says, you can't see me? No, 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 no. Just because your head's under the covers means your parent can still see you. The same thing, right? So it says, those who belong to him will rejoice, but the nations of the earth who have rejected him will mourn because they know the judgment is coming, right? So he's going to separate the good from the evil, those who follow him from follow Satan. And he gives him another picture in Matthew 25, 31. He talks about the sheep and the goats. It's once again the, the article of separation here. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, when he sits on his glorious throne, verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And these wicked will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The reason I think this is so critical, lots of reasons, it's very, very easy in this life to assume that it doesn't matter how we live because apparently there are no immediate consequences. Yes? How many of you know wicked people that are doing just fine? Yeah, I mean, you, you know them. I mean, you see them. It looks from all appearances that they're doing well. It looks as though God treats us all the same. That is not true. And it's going to be extremely obvious because Jesus Christ knows his own. The sheep will be separated from the goats. The sheep are those who have followed the good shepherd. And the goats have followed the false shepherd, Satan, the liar. Correct? The wheat, God's people, will enter the millennium. And from there, after a thousand years, heaven and the chaff, Satan's people, will enter the lake of fire. Don't get confused on destination, folks. There's only two. Verse 17. So we now have seen the wheat harvest, the grain harvest. Now we're going to go into the grape harvest. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Now remember, who had the sickle in the grain harvest? Jesus, the son. Who's got the sickle now? An angel's got the sickle now, not the Son of Man. Verse 18. Then another angel, the one who had power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to the angel who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. Keyword there is altar. The altar is inside the temple, and we're talking about the altar of incense. If you recall from the Jewish temple, they had an altar of incense and twice a day a priest would go and take coals from the brazen altar where they did the, the animal sacrifices and they would take those coals and they would pour, literally sprinkle grain, uh, certain kinds of grains and incense uh, seeds on it and it would create incense, smoke that would go up. And the incense of that altar represented the prayers of God's people because at the same time the priest was was burning that incense, God's people were outside the temple praying. So the incense in Scripture is always a picture of the prayers of God's people ascending to God. 
So this angel comes out from the temple. He's coming out. He's the power over fire. So this particular angel is the angel who's associated with the altar of incense and the prayers of God's people. And you say, well, what have the prayers of God's people been praying for? If you remember back in earlier chapter, the martyrs have been praying for what? Vengeance. Vengeance. The martyrs are under the altar of God. I think it's chapter 5, chapter 6. And they're saying, God, how long? How long? How long are you going to please avenge us? Man, these, this wickedness has gone on and on. Vindicate your holy name and bring judgment. Those prayers are now going to be answered. You know, <clears throat> and I know, that God always answers your prayers. Correct? <clears throat> I didn't say he always let you have your way. I didn't say he would answer your prayers in your time. God answers prayer in his time. Yes? In his way. For his glory and your good. Not necessarily your comfort. Right? Following Jesus can be uncomfortable. Amen? Is obedience ever uncomfortable? Frequently. Frequently. Right? So don't make decisions on God is not hearing me just because he doesn't give me my way. Your three-year-old grandchild who asks you for something that's harmful to them and you said no, they would say, you don't love me, Grandpa. Right? Because you won't let me drink this blah, blah, blah that's not good for me. And you're saying no, because I love you, I'm saying no to you. Very, very, very often our Heavenly Father says to us, son, daughter, because I love you, the answer is no. Or the answer is wait. Yes? So God is going to hear the prayers of these martyrs for vengeance, but he's going to do it in his time. Now the angel is commanded to begin the final judgment because what? The grapes of the earth are fully ripe. Here's the principle. In his infinite wisdom, God sometimes allows sin to increase before he judges it. It says the grapes of the earth are fully ripe. It means they're prime, they're bursting with the juice of wickedness. Evil on the planet has been increasing, yes, for seven years, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. Is that true today? Have you ever had a conversation of God why he just doesn't clean this place up? Like this afternoon? Because sin should bother us. By the way, asking God to judge sin is not a bad thing. Pleading with God to judge sin now is not a bad thing. As long as you're praying for his glory, he's interested in his glory. These martyrs apparently have been praying for quite some time. They've been under the altar. They certainly were martyred during the tribulation period. So they then a seven year period. They've been praying, God, bring judgment, bring judgment, bring judgment. And God says, now the evil of the earth is fully ripe. It's interesting that God called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob out of the land of Canaan 
called Jacob especially. He called Abram to the land of Canaan, Isaac, land of Canaan. And he pulled Jacob out of the land of Canaan and then sent him where for 400 years? To the land of Egypt. One of the reasons he did that is he says, the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet full. And I read that and I'm thinking, you're going to give these people 400 more years to do what? Get worse and more wicked and more evil. Really? That's the opportunity, but that's also the infinite wisdom of God. Because I know in your life, in my life, I know some of you in this room have evil in your life, not in you, around you, correct? You're in an environment where there's evil. You're around, you have people in your life that are doing evil things. And I've really struggled with this because there are times I'm thinking, God, you hate evil. I know you hate evil. You've said you do. You've said you're going to judge it. How about today? Right? How about today? Today would be a good day to judge evil. And then we have to go back and say, yes, God is perfectly just. And he's also completely merciful. Which means if he is patient with those people in your life that are wicked, you know what he wants them to do? Repent. He wants them to be saved. So he's giving them time to repent. And in the meanwhile, you have to live with the evil. Correct? You willing to do that? How patient was God with you before you came to faith? How patient is he with us today, even after we've come to faith? Does he put up with our sin? Yes, he does. See, we want God to deal with evil on our time schedule, but God wants all to be saved. So it's a call to prayer. It's a call to prayer that God will bring conviction to those people in our world that are evil, that need a savior. See, I, I'm pretty good at praying imprecatory prayers. I can pray fire down on anybody. You know, God just... You know what my solution to the abortion problem is? No more conception. God, just shut all conceptions off. There's no more babies born on planet Earth. It wouldn't take very many months before people go, oh my goodness, children are really precious. They're scarce. They just don't show up automatically. See, that's a human solution. It's a bad solution. You know why? Because if it was a really good one, God would have already done it. So the infinite wisdom of God has a solution that takes time. How long have we been dealing with the evil of abortion? Decade, actually a lot longer than 1973. We say, well, it's been 40 years. Well, that's been, it's been legalized by Henry Blackman of the Supreme Court. Actually, it's been going on since we got here, six and a half thousand years ago. So God's patience with our evil until it ripens into the time of judgment is his call, not our calls. He's given these people seven years to repent. And now he says, it's time. This is not, this grape harvest, by the way, is not a harvest of salvation, it's a harvest of damnation. Verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now that was prophesied, interestingly, by Joel in 835 B.C. Joel 3.13 says, Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. In other words, their evil is fully ripe. 
If you've never seen an ancient wine press, there's actually two big bowls carved out of stone. One is higher elevation, the other one is lower. And the grapes would go on the higher one, and that's where the workmen would trample the grapes with their feet, right? So you've got to make sure you cut your toenails and get the toe fungus out of there before you do this stuff, right? But you're trampling. It, you know, that's the antiseptic of alcohol, folks. You get the picture, okay? Anyway, they're trampling the grapes, right? Trampling grapes. And as they crush the grapes and smash the grapes, this purple-red fluid, grape juice, runs through a trough into the lower bowl of stone where it's collected, right? And then they take it from there. So it's collected into the second stone basin. It almost looks like blood. That's the picture he's telling you here. This wine press is a crushing right? And a destroying and a trampling of the grape to produce wine that looks like blood. This image, by the way, of the grapes of wrath, if you will, is an image of the last battle of Armageddon. It's actually Armageddon on the plain of Estrelon in the northern part of Israel. God himself said that he was going to tread out the nations in wrath. This, this, this chapter, I'm going to give you just check, Isaiah 63 verse 2, is really shocking to me. Because God is talking in Isaiah 63, verse 2, 3, and 4, and God is asked a question. Why is your apparel red and your garments, he's talking about God's garments, like the one who treads in the winepress. So God explains that in verse 3, Isaiah 63, verse 3. God says, I have trodden the wine trough alone. I also trod the nations in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment, all my clothing. When you trampled the wine press, you didn't wear new clothing. It's like pomegranate juice. Once it got on your clothes, it was a permanent stain, right? He's saying, God is saying that's blood. Verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. So God is using himself as the imagery of tramping the grapes as a symbol of his coming judgment. This is the destruction of sin. You and I know that God is not going to tolerate sin, correct? He's going to destroy sin. He wants to separate us from our sin. Those who refuse to have the blood of Jesus Christ pay for their sin and choose to cling to their sin will be trampled. That's the final judgment. And we're just getting started. The seven bulls we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Verse 20 gives us a little bit of a word picture. And the wine press, this is the big bowl where you trample and smash the grapes, was trodden, was stamped outside the city. They're talking Jerusalem. And blood came out from the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. It's a word picture, an image of the Battle of Armageddon that takes place outside the city of Jerusalem. Technically, it's not even the Battle of Armageddon, folks. It's the Battle of Jerusalem. The Valley of Jezreel is up north. Armageddon is located on the western end of that valley. And the Armageddon is just the staging ground. For those of you who've been to Israel, it's this huge valley. Napoleon said to be the perfect site for a battle, but it's the staging ground where, where the Antichrist is going to bring the armies of the earth together to battle against Almighty God. And we're going to get into that in great detail in chapter 19. But God here gives us two word pictures of the coming judgment. One is a grain harvest where there's a separation between the wheat and the weeds. 
the last harvest, the grape harvest, is simply God is saying, I'm going to destroy everything that's left because there's no more wheat left, correct? There's no more salvation left. There's no more repentance left. From this point on in Revelation, everyone has heard and everyone left has rejected. We are blessed to live in a time, I'm going to say this carefully, you in this room are wheat. You know the sun. And God in his infinite mercy has allowed you to be surrounded with evil people, with wicked people, with lost people. And this day of repentance is not yet over for you and for those in your world. At this point in Revelation, repentance is done. There's no more time. But there are people in your world that need a savior desperately. Some of them know it, most of them don't. Put them on a prayer list. While there's opportunity for them to come to faith, put them on a prayer list and go to war with them. Go to war over them. How many of you have seen The War Room? The movie The War Room? It's an exceptionally good movie because it explains to us that the battle is always in the prayer closet. That's where warfare takes place and that's where battles are won or lost. So if you have people in your world and you say, you know, I'm pretty sure these people don't know Jesus, they don't give indication of it, seriously, take them into the war room. Lift them up. Ask God for open doors because you do not want them to get to the point in time where the day of repentance is not available because the day is coming when judgment will fall and there will be no more opportunity to repent. Okay, let's review. Our key idea God is both perfectly just and completely merciful. And for us as Christians, we need to remember this. So God seeks to save sinners from his very own judgment because he loves them. Matthew 13, 24 to 33, everyone is either wheat or weed. And at the harvest, Jesus will separate people by destination, the barn or the bonfire. No other choices. Live your life every day as if you will face God's judgment today because none of us know when it's time to go home because someday everyone will. Obviously, we're talking about the judgment at that point. And the last one is, in his infinite wisdom, sometimes God allows evil to increase before he judges it. That's a call to prayer. That's a call to prayer. Okay? Tom, could you come and lead us? I love you guys. I know this is not light and happy. This is very sobering. This is very serious and it's very real. And God wrote it down because he wanted us to be prepared. I love you guys. Now that you know, do.